You can't shout fire in a theater. A political figure <clears throat> wants to restrict expression. And they say free speech isn't absolute. After all, you can't shout fire in a theater. This show is a tool for you. Next time you hear this objection by someone, send them this episode. Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka, brought to you today by the Zero Aggression Project, www.zeroaggressionproject.org. Please check out the mental levers there, along with a blog archive that features all of our episodes. We're going to make and back up two bold claims here on today's program. First, you can shout fire in a crowded theater. And second, while it might be morally wrong to do so, your action will have nothing to do with the First Amendment. Nothing. In fact, you'll want to come back to this episode the next time someone utters that bromide, you can't shout fire in a theater. Most platforms and apps provide ways to share this episode. We encourage you to do so. So let's start with the beginning. Where did this phrase come from? Well, <laughs> shouting fire in a, in a crowded theater actually was a thing. It happened a few times. There were fires in theaters in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and they didn't have the fire prevention and fire extinguishing tools that we have now. There weren't things like emergency exits, for example. And uh, so there were some catastrophes that happened. So it was kind of a, maybe you could even say an idiom at the time. There was some, some sense of it at the, at the turn of the century. Uh, the previous century. Were people like doing this as a joke or was it, uh, was, did it only happen for real reasons, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I, I didn't spend a lot of time reading about the fires themselves or the details of them, but it, it's, uh, um, it, it happened enough and there was a big enough tragedy. There were, there was one fire that killed over 200 people, almost 300. So, uh, I mean, people trying to do the right thing, but, in, but in all of this, this somehow got into the Supreme Court. So how do we get from a, a burning building, <laughs> you know, into the, it, Court. into the Supreme Court? So um, I'm talking to you from Akron, Ohio right now. And about uh, 25 minutes south of me, straight down 77, is Canton, Ohio. Uh, most people who today sure. know Canton, Ohio is the home of the Professional Football Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Well, just up the road from the Hall of Fame, I mean, not far at all, is a park. And from there, a man named Eugene Debs, a socialist, gave an anti-World War I, don't register or don't serve uh, the military speech. And he was arrested for this. He was given charges for, for violating the Espionage Act. And uh, he went, went to the courts and it went all the way to the Supreme Court where Oliver Wendell Holmes was sitting. And he said that uh, I have one defense. My one defense is the First Amendment. That's it. That's my whole defense. So the federal prosecutor in this case, Edwin Wirtz, uh, argued in his closing rebuttal. I want to quote from it just a little bit. 
Now he, referring to Dubs, speaks about the Constitution of the United States giving him the authority to do what he did at Canton. The Constitution provides that there shall be no abridgment of free speech. It is true. Yet it is a fact that a man in a crowded auditorium or any theater who yells fire, and there is no fire, and a panic ensues, and someone is trampled to death, may be rightfully indicted and charged with murder. That is an abridgment of the right of free speech according to the defendant's idea. Later, he adds, according to his theory, again, referring to Debs, a man could go into a crowded theater and yell fire when there is no fire and people trampled to death and he would not be punished for it because the Constitution says he has a right to free speech. Uh, no, this is not working for me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first instance of it being entered into the Supreme Court record and Holmes would be aware of that. Okay. So Debs is, well, I'm having trouble making the connection here because Debs is within his rights to say what he says. You would think so, wouldn't you? One would think, right? Yes, but there was an espionage act. We but have there was an espionage act. We have a history going all the way back to John Adams in this country of certain things being considered seditious in nature, sure. and we do not treat protest of any kind in the same kind way that we treat it in most other instances. Right, and we're There's dealing with one of those right now, right? We just oh. got through dealing with one of those, and 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 uh, and, and it's, it's nowhere near as bad as it was in World War One. Got it. The Espionage Act was used to silence people who disagreed. The Espionage Act was used even against dissenters who uh, had who were in, in protest due to their faith. They would not want to serve in military action and sure. refused to go. The Quakers, um, I mean, Anabaptists, responsible. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this this is making sense to me. So that so this isn't really a this isn't really a First Amendment. Issue. We're good. You're, you're, you're getting ahead of me. That's exactly where we're going on this. Right. This is not a First Amendment issue. Okay. Debs is an Espionage Act issue. Uh, yes. And we're going to, yeah, let's get into that. Let's definitely get into that. Yeah. So, yeah. Take me there. Okay. So, how did this, the next question we need to come up against then is how did Shoutfire become popularly associated with the First Amendment? Right. Okay. You get these politicians or political figures that come on television and go, well, free speech is an absolute, Bill. I mean, you can't shout fire in a theater, right? As if these two things are connected together. And so how did that happen? Well, it happens because Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice, aware of the cultural references we just described and aware perhaps of its use in the Debs case, inserts it in Schenck v. United States. This is a case from 1919. He wrote for a unanimous court that it was a violation of the Espionage Act of 1917, again, there's that bill, yeah. to distribute flyers opposing the draft during World War I. Holmes said that, that this uh, abridgment of free speech was permissible because it presented a clear and present danger to the government's recruitment efforts for the war. Here's, here's what he wrote. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. I'm going to keep reading the quote, but I want to read the relevant section slower and again so that everybody's focused in on what exactly Holmes said, because you will hear this phrase used frequently, and it's 
often the case that they don't use it in its full, complete statement, all of which, as we're going to demonstrate momentarily, matters. Free speech would not protect a man falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Oh, uh, wait a minute. He's jumping from a theater to Congress. <laughs> yes, he is. And although there are similarities, <laughs> yes. right? <laughs> yes, they both are, they both are uh, entertaining, sometimes in not so pleasant ways. So let me let me make four points about this. Yeah. First, Shank v. United States did not actually address the question of whether or not it is illegal to shout fire in a crowded theater. Right. He's he's alighting that to some other potentially significant opinion that may or may not have anything to do with it. Right. It's an analogy. So it's not actually law. Like what he just said is not the law. He didn't yeah. actually give a test, a rule, a guide. A penumbra. There's nothing of that nature in here. Zip zero, not a not a thing. It's not a law. Yeah. Second, Schenck is partially overturned by Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. So the decision that he authored has been overturned almost entirely. And in that case, they limited the scope of banned speech to that which would be directed to and likely to incite imminent lawless action. For example, a riot. So in other words, what we're talking about here is not a rational appeal. Je Deb stands up and says, don't join the war effort. That's a rational appeal. There's no riot that ensues. No property is being damaged. Nobody's been trampled to death in the process. No, There is no incitement to a lawless action in those cases. I'm with you on this, yes. Okay. And that is the only exception that remains in the law to this day. So once again... It never was in the law, the fire in a crowded theater. And if it was, it's now been overturned. You're with me yes. so far, right? Yes. Here's number three. Holmes himself showed evidence as his, as his judicial career continued of going back on this position. So there's a specialist out there that writes about an, uh, uh, one case called the Abrams case. Uh, here is a guy distributing Russian uh, revolution pamphlets. And Holmes starts to backpedal from his previous position a bit because this man was a nobody arguing for a cause nobody was going to be interested in. And he clearly isn't shouting. He's printing out, he's passing out something on paper. Somebody's got to stop and read it and decide what they're going to do with that information. And there's no crowd effect to, to run with here. And he starts to backpedal from this very position he took in the Debs case. And I'm not talking about the crowd of theater part. I'm talking about the whole thing that he, that he wrote. Yeah, the actual legal to, opinion. Yeah, he begins to reverse course and realize maybe this Espionage Act stuff has gone too far, but of course, by that point, the threat of World War I was over. The crisis had abated. Think of how many people have woken up. Uh, not everybody wants to admit it. Their ego won't permit them, but think about how many people's eyes have woken up since we got done with C+, right? Right, right. And ironically, we're using the word C plus instead of the actual word, which is the thing that went around the world and we all were affected by for two, three years, because this platform has uh, an Al Gore that uh, uses its rhythm to censor. But uh, this is my biggest point. This is the one, this is the killer point, okay? 
This is I've got the bases loaded, and now it's time to hit a grand slam. Who in modern times wants to be associated with the kind of action taken against Eugene Debs? You realize when you invoke this thing, you're saying that socialists who oppose war should go to prison. That's what you're saying. You're saying that someone exercises a free expression right. They take their First Amendment seriously and they oppose an action by the state. And they speak out about this. Should go to prison. That's what you're saying. And there's no legal premise for that anymore. In no. the Supreme Court, in, in, in the in the Supreme Court. Correct. At this point. Correct. And, and and by the way, anybody who's still bold enough to go, well, of course that's what I mean. I can't stand my opponents. Send them to prison. Okay. What can we conclude about the strength of their arguments? They believe in them so much that the other side cannot be heard. How well, we confident can, are they that they're really right? We can conclude that that's what can get you elected president, Jim. all right so that you know what if i were to insert a grace point early it would be right here yeah and that is that we should stop referring to cases that would be used to take someone who exercises a clear first amendment right and send them to prison that should be like i don't know the minimal like we should be willing to hear from people we should believe enough in our own values and arguments we should believe that we have better arguments and we should respectfully listen to what people have to say and then counter it as James Madison advised we do. That's my grace point for the day or my primary grace point, I guess. And a little bit early. A lot of times we do that at the end of the show. Here it is right in the middle. You didn't, well, even, have to go, you didn't even have to go 13 minutes to get it. Even in a crowded theater, somebody's going to jump up and yell fire. Most of the theater is going to yell at that person to sit down and shut up. <laughs> yes. So you know, this brings we, us up to the logistics. <laughs> this brings us up to logistics of this whole thing. You know, I wouldn't want to say something ridiculous in public. I wouldn't want to get behind this microphone and say something that's so obviously illogical, so obviously wrong and in error. But the problem is it's been baptized repeatedly by lots of people now for over a hundred years. And so it's become okay to say it. So, you know, there's certain things that we can't say. There's certain words we don't say anymore or whatever. This should be relegated onto the ash heap of history. People who say this should feel embarrassed after they said it. Okay? First, we just pointed out in Grand Slam fashion that they are associating with the idea that people who use their First Amendment expression deserve to go to prison. That's the source of this. So we, yeah. we, we have a lot of stuff like we say, oh, that's buried and that comes from slavery or that comes from Jim Crow. Well, this comes from censorship of people using their First Amendment rights to oppose a war. Okay. And it says we should throw people in prison. That's where you're coming from. So we're all clear where you're coming from. But the logic of this is also a failure. You can yeah. Yeah. actually shout fire. And if you don't believe me, go ahead and try it. And I don't recommend it, but you can do it. Okay. There's, there's, you can't have a law that stops somebody from doing something, right? Like you can do things to them after the fact, but you can't do anything to them in front of it. It doesn't prevent anything. But Jim, so, hold on, wait, time out here, because yes. there's a lot of people who make laws to prevent things from happening. Yes, but shouting is an expression. And, ah, and unless, okay. unless we're going to sew everybody's mouth up, right? Cut out their vocal cords. There's not going to be a way that you can prevent a determined person from shouting in a crowded theater. So this is a rabbit hole we may not want to go down, but there's a difference between shouting and other forms of expression, too. Yeah, we're going to go down it. 
let me let me let me just keep going in order here because I, I think yeah. there's some important points to be made. And I don't want to miss anything we have to say. I want this to be a complete takedown. I want this episode to stick with people as a complete takedown of this idea. Okay. Uh, the people, let's the people who make this claim. Let's be fair to them. They'll say, "Wait a minute, Jim. That was not fair that you just pointed that out because that's not literally what we meant. Uh, we meant that if you do it, you'll be arrested." Okay, and that is also highly unlikely to be true for the reason that you already mentioned. At worst, what's going to happen ninety-eight percent of the time is that you'll be escorted out of the theater by the usher. Yeah, that's it. That's the whole thing. Okay. Didn't break a law, but you were a nuisance. Out you go. Out you go. Okay. So where is the crime in all of this? Because it's not a speech offense first. And this is key. This is key. There's certain ingredients you need. And one of them is a crowd. You remember when we were reading through the, the, the statement made by Oliver Wendell Holmes, you need a crowd. Yeah. So... So shout fire in an empty theater. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah. You can shout fire in an empty theater and there's no crowd. So the, the tumult that ensues, the stampede, no one, no one gets harmed or hurt. Two or three people orderly get up and leave the theater. There's no crowd. There's to no cause crowd. injury or damage. Holmes's formulation also included the word falsely. What if there was a fire? What if there was a fire? Would it be wrong to shout fire in that case? You can shout fire. You should shout fire. It's a moral imperative to shout fire in a crowded theater if indeed there is a fire. Yeah, just common sense. So the act of shouting fire in a crowded theater is not itself a crime unless it's done falsely. Okay. However... We also have to, when we make claims like this, we have to get to the intent of the person who spoke. And if they're insane, or if they saw smoke and believed there was a fire. So their intention at the moment actually does matter to how they will subsequently be charged. Okay. All right. But even more important to our particular discussion here today, there are two more conditions that, are, that I've written down here that are necessary. First, the crowd that we spoke of has to stampede. They have to exit in disorderly, dangerous fashion. Yeah. And second, the stampede should cause people to be materially injured. Right. <clears throat> For which you can be charged according to the first Supreme Court um, attempt, shall mm -hmm. we call it? Yes. <laughs> the first swing, the first strike? Yes. Uh, you could be charged for murder or manslaughter. Manslaughter. Okay, that, let's get into that. So uh, if it's just the theater's business that you manage to impair in this process because everyone leaves, you're unlikely to get more than a disorderly conduct and in some localities a specialized charge like uh, uh, filing a false report or hitting an alarm illegally or whatever. They've, they've got variations. Yeah, right. Pulling the fire alarm. Yeah. That kind of thing. Like like that congressman recently who pulled, the, you know, who, who hit the door open button, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if someone is killed, you might get involuntary manslaughter as a result of it. It's not a murder charge, okay? But can I? we point out something about all these charges that we're talking about here? None of them are speech-related. None of them are First Amendment issues in any way. 
Shouting fire isn't a speech offense. It's a person and property offense. We can see the actual harm that was caused. We can identify it. It's material in nature. And then we can do something. So you can shout fire in a theater. And while it might be morally wrong for you to do such a thing, your action will have nothing to do with the First Amendment. Let me repeat these two statements because they're the thesis of the show. Yep. You can shout fire in a theater. You can do it. While it might be morally wrong to do so, your action will have nothing to do with the First Amendment. Right. And Oliver Wanda Holmes, shame on Chief Justice Oliver, he tried to conflate those two things and had to walk his opinion back over the course of his career. And other people continue to conflate as if they're completely unaware of those course corrections or what is really truly at stake, as we've just laid out. Gotcha. All right. So <laughs> can we get into censorship? Because yes. that whole thing about the uh, the Espionage Act, all that. So the government has an interest in preventing certain speech, especially during wartime. But when you take away the, the wartime factor and you re-engage the First Amendment, any kind of speech that is suppressed is a federal crime. Right? Suppression it should be a federal. Speech. It should be a federal crime to suppress that speech, right? The people in right. power doing it do not have the authority to do so. And, and I'm an absolutist on this. I believe that what was done to Eugene Debs was wrong. It was immoral, and it was a violation of the First Amendment. I believe all right. of those things. And I'm an absolutist about this. We wouldn't do that today. Uh, I, mean, I, I hope not. Pick... I hope not. We didn't mm -hmm. do it. So we just had the Iraq War. Now, there was a lot of social shaming that went on in the early part of that century when that happened. Yep. But it did. It was not. there was no law preventing you from opposing it. I know because I would have ended up in prison. We had truthaboutwar.org that we put out uh, in the weeks leading up to that war effort exposing what ultimately became very obvious sets of lies that were being told. We said, these things are not true that you are being told. The American media is not, the regime media is not sharing this information with you. They're not critically examining this. And then in, you know, by 2006 and seven, it was becoming obvious to everyone. So much so that, you know, one of the Republican presidential candidates said, well, let's not talk about that. That's ancient history. This situation's different. So, uh, so let's review let's review the relevant parts of the First Amendment, okay? Right, because there, you've said some things about the First Amendment that are in, that are intriguing to me. Yes, and it's not just about speech, right? It isn't. It's con so. First off, we always have to say this. We always have to say this because it's such an absolute statement that opens up the uh, the First Amendment. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the First Amendment. So the First Amendment states right off the bat, Congress shall make no law. So what does no law mean if not no law? Absolutely no law. So this is one is this is not one of those, depends on what the definition of uh, is is. That's not one of these types of exercises at the moment that we're engaged in, right? It's just so absolute. It's just so spot on. No law. 
period. That that you just don't you could stop there. In fact, I wish that's what the Constitution said. Congress shall make no law. Could, that would be a very <laughs> yes. But it goes on to specify the the things that they cannot make laws about, and they cannot make laws about speech, press. Uh, they can't re- uh, uh, restrict the right of the people to assemble. They can't. They can't prevent the petition for the redress of grievances. They can't. But Congress. Those- Congress has other powers that are not involved in making law. And yes. by that, yes. I want to suggest the influence that Congress had over um, big tech recently, when we got the Twitter files and the mega, the meta files, and all those mm-hmm. other files that showed that Congress was exerting its influence without yes. making a law. With well, uh, okay. So, uh, getting into the fine print here, Article One, Section Eight actually lays lays out quite a few powers that they have. And the most important power that Congress has, according to Article One, is the power of the purse. So all spending bills of any kind originate from the Congress. And if you don't fund something, that is the equivalent to saying it can only be done voluntarily. Nobody on the payroll has been authorized to do something. And that's the why they also have the power to say flat out, this money cannot be used to do X or Y. They have that ability too. So it's the purse strings that Congress uses to either send or authorize somebody to go and do something. They can explicitly say no money can be spent to send or authorize somebody to do a certain given activity. And if they say we're providing zero funding for this activity or or whatever in the first place, then there is no money for that. So they can say that in all those ways. But we know that they did fund a variety of, of activities, and they've done nothing to prevent those activities from being carried out, where, wherein bureaucrats from various agencies approached these social media companies and then used the, the power to threaten, um, in other ways, these entities, you know, mighty nice social media company there, be a shame if something happened to it, and they used that power to then uh, get around the First Amendment, Yep. But I would argue that the activity here is so overt in that they were actually seeking to have certain words expunged from the record that it is 100% completely clear that they were violating the First Amendment. And I am bothered that there is no sanction for this. At a very minimum, they should have lost their federal careers and been prevented from ever serving in any governmental capacity ever again. I would have also argued that they should have lost their pensions for having done so because they take an oath when they take these these uh, take roles in many cases. Protection and those who had taken the, uh, the oath should not be allowed to receive any future compensation of any sort from the government. And I would have been satisfied with that. But there are other people who can make a plausible case that other sentences should have been carried out even beyond that. But if just these two things have been in place... If just these two penalties have been in place, you'd never have to deal with this problem ever again. Yeah. It would send more than a hand slap. Yep. Okay. I want to make a second point. Congress shall make no law. Let's go back to the amendment itself. Yeah. So I was involved with a group of uh, plaintiffs in the bipartisan campaign reform act case. Uh, McCain Feingold was the name of the law when it was coming up. It was McConnell VFEC when they consolidated everybody. Our particular plaintiff group was the Paul VFEC group. And we argue that the core issue was in that case, which was a campaign finance case, was not free speech. Rather, it was freedom of the press. Now, 
I, I want to break this down. I've explained this in other episodes before, and we'll all explain it in episodes to come, but it's very relevant here, and I want everybody going forward to the rest, the remainder, the re- remaining few minutes of this episode to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. So let me break this down. The first principle of constitutional jurisprudence is that every word of a, of a constitution has significance. None of the language is redundant. It may contain clarifications, but redundancies are not there. And, and, and the way that you can know this is if you've ever served on a committee that was sending a letter, writing a platform plank, or engaging in some other writing exercise, you're doing the right the work as a committee. Maybe you're making a rule or a bylaw. You know from your painful experience that what I just said is true, that every word is poured over, every phrase matters and carries weight. And if the First Amendment, therefore, mentions separately both free speech and free press, they must somehow each be distinct and important. And there's a simple grammatical exercise we can apply that further validates that this is the fact. We can look at the amendment and take note that freedoms of speech and press are separated by the conjunction or. This indicates that they are separate and different from one another. So it's speech or press. Both freedoms, again, speech and press, are preceded by the definite article the the freedom of speech or of the press. This indicates that both speech and press have distinct properties of their own. Now, perhaps a grammatical argument could be made that speech and press are the same thing if it doesn't include the conjunction or, or they didn't use the definite article both times the, okay? If, for example, with a lot less precision, a a deliberative body could render something like, did you go to the mall or plaza? You wouldn't assume, though, if I said that, that I was being redundant even in that situation. I, You would think that I was speaking of two different places different unless places. you had specific knowledge to the contrary. Right. So these are separate and distinct properties, and press is the one that bans censorship. Okay, I'm with you on this, and for a lot of the reasons I'm remembering from from previous episodes, mm-hmm. the effort that it takes to produce the press, the money that's invested in bringing the press to the public, uh, these are distinct qualities that are different from, you know, even from Eugene Debs standing standing out there in the park. Yes, you know. Yes, so so, <laughs> but we're talking about whether or not shouting fire is an issue. Shouting fire is completely irrelevant to press rights. It has nothing to do. You'd, you would have to, it would be, you know, well, it might not be that long, but it'd take a few minutes if the press were to run an article about somebody shouting fire in a theater and publish it within the theater itself. Yeah, so so what, <laughs> is it illegal, for example, I'll go one step further. Is it illegal to print and distribute the word fire in the same crowded theater? It depends on whether it's trademarked. <laughs> so so my point is like if someone if you're in a debate with somebody and and the issue is censorship or the issue is campaign finance or some other planned communication where press yes. is the thing the killer yes. argument the stinger is to ask them is it elite okay all right all right i'm with you we can't shout fire in a crowded theater tell you what what if i what if i go to the to the store and i print up a whole bunch of flyers that have the word fire and i quietly distri- distribute them in a theater because that's what they would actually be suggesting at that moment. And that's that the would killer be press. argument. 
Right. Yes. Printing a distributed and distributing a message is a planned communication. When we're talking about press, we are talking about planned communications. And as you just pointed out, planned communications are activities of a political campaign. They can be TV ads, radio spots, press releases, white papers. They are all designed to get a specific message out. And here's the key thing. They all cost money to do. They require to produce. So even this that we're doing here is not speech. This show that we're doing right here is a planned communication delivered through technology to you. This is an instance of us practicing press. And there's no way you can argue that this is incitement to anything. You can't subsequently blame me for people's lack of reflection. There's no mob assembled going with pitchforks and 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 stakes and fire ready to go do whatever I just said because I got yeah. them all whipped up into a fervor. It does not cross the Brandenburg line. So it is not a violation of the First Amendment, and the and the shouting fire does not apply. It's not even relevant. So I, help me out here a second, because you said something that I, I made a connection. I want to make sure I've got this right. The freedom of the press, planned communication, and the freedom of campaign finance yes. are, is also planned communication. So we're saying that those two things are legally the same? They're both press rights, and they're both under the Congress shall make no law. There we go. Okay, so that's huge because campaign finance is a whole rabbit trail all by itself. And we've covered that in previous episodes, which we and can we have. in the show notes. We've done two episodes on this, as a matter of fact. Yes, yes. So um, <laughs> so we can sweep a whole bunch of things into this bin, including freedom of the press, freedom of campaign finance, which is, <laughs> Congress has made a whole bunch of laws about that, which yeah. may be sub suspect here under the First Amendment, Right. Right. But for our then, of purposes, course, censorship. For our purposes here, shouting fire cannot be used as a logical example. It doesn't apply First Amendment wise. It doesn't apply in Supreme Court jurisprudence. It doesn't apply logically. And if it does, then let's see, let's run a test. Let's see how much trouble we can cause by distributing a flyer that says fire in a crowded theater. Yeah, I'll try that, you know, tonight and get back to you, see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to point out that this doesn't come out of nowhere. I want to add one more log to the fire aside from the grammatical argument I just made. And that is that there is the reason the founders had good reason to make a speech and press distinction. Right. And I'm saying yes. this because there might be some smart ass legal scholar listening to this right now, because they're all, by the way, I, the overwhelming majority of them are not smart enough to, to understand their English teachers. And they say, well, these are Lawrence, largely the same thing. I'll, and I'll pick you one. One of the all-time legal scholars that gets quoted by the media all the time, Lawrence Tribe, says speech and press are basically the same thing. I have a friend who served on the FEC, uh, literally. And, I mean, he was one of the commissioners. And he's like, well, you know, it all, at the end of the day, is somehow other speech. No, it's not. You're wrong. And he's a good guy. I like him a lot. He's done a lot of good. But he's wrong about this. Uh, the lesson has been lost. The founders had very much in mind when they wrote the Declaration of Independence in particular, their own history, of the events that had happened less than a decade before uh, involving the Stamp Act, or just about a decade before, excuse me, involving the Stamp Act. So the Stamp Act is a licensing scheme. So you're going to operate a printing press, and if you're going to operate this printing press, we're going to give you a license. And we all watched during the recent C-plus episode how certain businesses uh, were kind of arrested. They were not allowed to continue their work 
again, I'm avoiding using certain words because we live in an era of censorship here. And this, and one of the platforms I'm on might decide that we can't talk any further or this whole episode's about C+. And I don't, it's not, has nothing to do with C+. But just so you know, uh, we watch businesses shut down. Their licenses were threatened. They would lose the license to do business. You should, no license should to do business should ever, ever exist world without end. But there you go. That's what they did then too. The king said, you're going to have to get my stamp. You're going to have to pay a tax. And that was the very first thing. This is really the very beginning of the Revolutionary War movement. This is this is where the real trouble begins between the king and his subjects here in the what was the colonies at the time. He was so a licensing scheme represents a prior restraint. Let me say those words again because I want them to stick. Yes, a prior restraint. We talked a few moments ago about how you can always express yourself. You can say whatever you want. We can't sew your mouth shut. What a press restriction does. What a business license does, what the Stamp Act did, and the founders were well aware, is impose a prior restraint. So they could say that they want to be able to tax or regulate your ability to print flyers that have the word fire on them, because you might distribute them in a crowded theater, but that would be a violation of the First Amendment because it says Congress shall make no law. But you cannot impose one on shouting fire. And our founders understood that both of these rights needed to be protected pretty absolutely. And I would argue completely absolutely because the, the, it's not a violation of the First Amendment to say that your speech led to the incitement of a riot. This is something we're debating in the culture right now. Yeah. Did the president of the United States stand up and incite a crowd to go in and invade the Capitol or not? Were other people involved in incitement towards a riot in that situation? In other words, not the, the speech and the press would both have had to be involved for there to be a. No, I'm saying that the fact that we could see the obvious damage of the crowd stir, stirred up could potentially bring into question what the intention of the speaker was at that moment. That's going to okay, be the hardest part go. for them to prove is what yeah. his intent was. Was he trying to do what he was doing? That's going to be the hardest part to prove. But the there, wording there, that was, he uses, a, there the wording was a press that he uses involvement, though. Enough. Yeah, the wording that he uses is vague enough. Yes. That, yes. Yes. Okay. So was Eugene Debs doing anything like shouting fire? No. No, he was no. exercising his First Amendment speech rights his first amendment speech rights uh and his right to assemble right to and assemble to encourage other people to use their first amendment right to petition for a redress of grievances but he also would have been within his rights if he'd printed flyers and handed them out he would have been completely within his rights completely within, exactly. whatever and however even, way you want to look at it and even oliver wendell holmes was starting to acknowledge that right after the war was over you see these rights matter the most when they're the most offensive when the, when the most people are shocked, that's when they actually matter. They don't matter six and eight years later after we've already thrown somebody in prison. That's not when they matter. Oh, gee, we're really sorry. Well, come on. Can we ever learn from this? Because it's not like we've not been through this process, you know, a time or two. Can you make an argument, Jim, that regulation, for example, for the various different types of tax, advan tax advantages for not-for-profits, uh, is an infringement of First Amendment rights. Can you say your question a different way? 
Sure. Um, so not-for-profits can charter under 501c3, in which case they're prevented from any kind of advocacy, or they can charter under 501c8, in which case they're allowed a certain form of advocacy. You lose your tax advantages if you don't follow the regulations that allow you to be chartered. So a, a not-for-profit that, say, advocates for veteran services might have a different charter than a not-for-profit that feeds hungry veterans. And the one who feeds them, if they go out and start to advocate, could lose their tax advantages because the regulations say they can't do that. And they've agreed to the regulations. So I'm not going to do the subject justice because it doesn't have much to do with shouting fire. So I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail on this yeah. one. Just you see gonna, where I'm going though, right? Yeah. The I don't believe that the government should be charging us, should be taxing us anyway. I know. And, it's sort of a moot that, question in this environment. And, that, but. And, and, and I think that should that's the problem, right? Because then they can start to use it to extend special favors or create various incentives. That's what I hope you'd say, yes. And they should not have that power either. They should not be in the business of social engineering or control. So they shouldn't be in the tax business. They shouldn't be in the social engineering and control business. And then, and then I would say, though, beyond that, in the current environment, if you have made the decision that you're willing to swap away certain things so that you can get certain other, now what these would be called privileges, then, then go with it. I'm in this world and I can tell you there are ways to get things done. You just have to make sure you dot I's and cross T's. It's a pain in the rear end, it's bureaucratic, but almost everything you want to accomplish can still be done, uh, save for uh, uh, running an independent campaign for president, let's say. But most other yes, things- Yes, except can be for done. that. <laughs> most other things can be done. Okay. Most things in the possible. Okay, bring us home. Uh, well, I'd like to, I, you know, I think maybe my ultimate point or penultimate point, I'm not sure, is that um, I want to see if I can extend some grace to people who say there are exceptions to the freedom of speech. And then they say, unfortunately, after all, you cannot shout fire in a theater. Uh, how can we find grace for the people who do this? So I have to first acknowledge that even Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But please understand, if you're in the sound of my voice right now, you're someone who can make sure that the next time they do it, they know they should be confronted on this point. So if I'm going to steel man their position a little bit further, uh, the Brandenburg decision was about species directed to and likely to be incitement to a riot. So, Bill, let me ask you a question. Is is a Brandenburg uh, exception, is, is that... The idea that if you've incited a riot, is that a free press matter? Well, you have to look at the, the thing in, in arrears. You're saying, I have to look back and see if the results were there. It's like the guy who shouted fire in the theater and nothing happened. Right. Because there was no fire. And the guy who shouted fire in the theater and there was a panic and a stampede and uh, most of the people got out, but some were killed. Okay. So you have you to get look, up, look back at it. Right. You get up and you tub thump and you stir up the crowd and they destroy property and invade some space then maybe some, somebody has done something wrong, okay? But we need to be clear about this going forward, forever. Everybody needs to understand this. You'll be charged for material harm that you've, that you've helped done, you're, whether it's physical injury or death, or it might be property damage or theft, but you're basically an accessory to those crimes now. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Okay, so I'm, I wanna make a call, instead of using this lazy phrase, shout fire in a theater, I would like to have more truth in advertising. I would like more precision in the statement. Censorship, campaign finance restrictions, and other types of suppression of First Amendment activities are immoral and illegal, constitutionally speaking. And anytime, well, anytime 
we suppress someone's rights. We reduce happiness, harmony, and prosperity. And on top of that, and this is the thing that bothers me the most, when we cancel other people's speech, when we shut down their ability to express themselves, we cancel uh, epistemological, that was hard for me to say, epistemological journeys. In other words, the quest for what is the truth, we shut that down in a human being because we didn't treat them with the appropriate respect. So in review, you can shout fire in a theater, and while it is morally wrong to do so, your action will have nothing to do with the First Amendment. And any time someone is going to utter the phrase, well, you can't shout fire in a theater, now you have the ammunition to graciously correct this very ungracious thought.